0: Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open it to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12 this morning as we continue our series through the short letter, Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, where he really is calling them to stand firm in the midst of great challenges and afflictions. As we'll continue to see throughout this series. It's a short passage, so let me read it to you from the Christian Standard Bible, and then we will pray. Hear God's word from Second Thessalonians chapter one, beginning in verse 11. "In view of this, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling. And by his power, fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we pray now that you would take these two short verses, this prayer request, this purpose statement, this um, piece of the heart of the Apostle Paul that you would show us your heart that you would show us your glory your goodness your power your action your activity and initiation in our lives so father soften our hearts this morning we're watching most of us on video and so it's extra hard to pay attention with all the difficulties of it being not I'm not in each other's physical presence Other activities are going on in our home. Lord, would you distract or would you guard us from distractions? Take away all distractions. Take away Satan. Guard us from Satan who would seek to take the word and pluck it out. Give us a specific word, Lord, for our church. And give us specific words for each of us, Lord. Each here, Christian and non-Christian. Speak powerfully by your Spirit's power, Lord. Make us worthy of your calling. Fulfill every desire for good, even the desire to hear your word in faith and fulfill every work of faith, work produced by faith, so that Christ would be glorified in us and we in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I keep referring back to Matthew 7, 21 through 23, one of the scariest passages in the Bible for me, where it's the professing Christian, the professing follower of Jesus, who is meeting Jesus on Judgment Day, and he says, Lord, Lord, um, you know, he he wants to go to heaven. He's right there in in the judgment, Uh, Jesus, he says, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, And some will say in that day, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? And didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out many demons in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you lawbreakers. That's scary. And as professing Christians, and I'm looking at professing Christians here and even on Zoom today, we want to glorify Jesus in our sincerity in our self-examination we want to glorify jesus with our lives yet not all professing christians really actually glorify jesus in their lives in such a way that they can know that they're christian or in such a way that they do know that they're christian so how can we ensure ourselves how can we be sure that we're really following jesus how can we be sure we're really following jesus if on the judgment day there will be some who are surprised how can we be sure we're really following Christ, that our faith is real and our salvation is real, since we do want to glorify Jesus. Now, in our desire to glorify Jesus, the way that God set up life is that God sets up a series of challenges, difficulties, that we go through in this life that test our faith. And for some, it strengthens our faith, and for others, it exposes the lack of real faith. But here's the, here's the, the point. The point is that as we seek to glorify God, there are a series of challenges in this broken world from the world from the flesh in our own hearts and from the devil there will be challenges in following jesus and so life does get hard life is hard but the question is is our pain worth it is or or uh, is our pain worth it or is our pain meaningless is are our difficulties and troubles useless if we want to ask it from a theological side what does god mean what does, what does God mean or what does God intend through our challenges in following Jesus and in professing to follow Jesus? God is able to do all things, right? Why can't God just make it easy for us? Why does he ordain difficulties in our lives? Well, the good news from this passage is that we don't have to um, be stuck in confusion and we don't have to be worried about whether our faith is real. We can actually know from this passage of how to live our lives in such a way that we are actually glorifying Jesus. So let's go to the situation here in 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul's writing this is second letter within the same year, within, within the same 12-month time span of 1 Thessalonians. He's writing to the church because they are confused about the second coming of Jesus. They think that they missed it, that there was another letter written by Paul which wasn't written by him. They are um, facing persecution from non-Christians ever since the church was planted. The very time Paul planted the church, there was persecution. And so they're facing persecution and opposition from family, friends, neighbors, and others, maybe even in the synagogue, as was typical in that day. They had an undisciplined church member who was not pulling his own weight in terms of work and contribution to the church within his ability. And so there's a lot of discouragement in this church. If you love a church that's struggling with these different difficulties, what would you do? If you wanna help a church, a small church, maybe 30 people, 40 people, 50 people, and you wanna help them with all of these different trials, what could you do for them? Well, what does Paul do in verse 11? He prays for them. Earlier, we learned that he thanks God for them. He writes a letter to them, and Paul prays for them regularly. He always prays for them. He prays to the Almighty God. When you feel powerless, in your love for another person, what should you do? Well, Paul, in his powerless, prays to the one who has no limits on his power. He prays to God the Father. And so if Paul is praying for these Thessalonians in this letter, and if he's telling these Thessalonians, I am praying for you always, Silvanus is praying for you always, Timothy is praying for you always, what does he want the Thessalonians to, what's the effect he wants For the Thessalonians as they read these verses i don't think the main application of this passage is pray like paul i think that is a secondary application and a really good one but i don't think that's the main the the first initial application paul's telling them i'm praying for you if someone says i'm praying for you the application is like okay i'll pray too i'll pray just like you no when someone says i'm praying for you what should be the effect on you you should be encouraged right not only that you should be expecting That if they're praying to god their father and god is for them and not against them god will answer their prayer for you not always with a yes but god will respond to their prayer so if christine comes and says to me i'm praying for you and i prayed this for you i should expect that god heard her and that god's going to respond to her prayer request for me and now as i continue to live my life i should be expecting that in some way god is going to answer that prayer or do something in light of that prayer does that make sense so i think the i think the main application here when Paul says, I'm praying for you always, is that you should expect God to work in you in answer to that prayer, okay? So here's the main goal, the way I'm saying it here. Expect God, if someone's praying for you, here's the main goal. Expect God to work powerfully in you so that you would be glorified, so that Christ would be glorified in your trials. Expect God to work powerfully in you so that Christ would be glorified in your trials, If you're already expecting god to work in you you could maybe tweak that the the main goal to say raise your expectations but the but still the main point the main goal still stands expect god from second thessalonians 1 11, 12 expect god to work powerfully in your lives so that christ is glorified in your trials so that you know that you're really glorifying jesus and you're not just a professing fake christian but a professing real christian all right well, to raise these expectations, to raise this expectation and to, to grow in this expectation, there are four expectations I want to point out to you from this passage, okay? Four expectations. Number one, from verse 11, look at it again. In view of this, we always pray for you. And now in view of this is what I talked about already. In view of uh, verse five, really, it is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering. So you're suffering for God's kingdom, and it's clear evidence of God's righteous judgment. We talked about that last Sunday. So Paul is saying, in view of your suffering for Jesus, in view of the fact that God is righteously judging and he's going to give you relief, in view of the fact that God is going to count you worthy as you endure suffering, in view of that, verse 11, we always pray for you, me, Silvanus, Timothy, we always pray for you that, what is he praying now? There's two, or you could say three prayer requests here two major ones, but three prayer requests, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. So here's number one, expect God to make you worthy of his calling. You see that in verse 11? If he's praying that God would make you worthy of his calling, then you should expect God to make you worthy of God's calling. Now, what is God's calling? One way you could figure out God's calling is to just look for the word calling in, look for the word calling in the book of 2 Thessalonians. So look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 but we ought to thank god always for you brothers and sisters loved by the lord because from the beginning god has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and through belief in the truth so god chose you for salvation from the beginning he called you to this there it is he called you to this salvation through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our lord jesus christ so that you might obtain the glory of our lord jesus christ so what did god call you to to this salvation The salvation that you were chosen for the salvation that you were sanctified uh, to by the spirit the the salvation that you received through belief in the truth so you were called to salvation salvation from your sins salvation from god's wrath through jesus christ so now paul is praying going back to verse 11 i pray that you may that god will make you worthy of this of the calling to salvation to being saved from sin and to being saved from God's judgment through Jesus Christ. Being so uh, that God would make you worthy of your salvation, of being saved from sin. So what does it mean now to be made worthy? Now, the dictionary definition in the Greek dictionary would be to consider suitable for requital or for receipt of something. So to consider worthy or to consider, consider deserving. So if you just took that, plug that definition, my prayer is that God would make you or that God would consider you worthy of salvation, worthy of the salvation to which you were already called from the beginning, chosen from the beginning and the one that you received through belief in the truth and by the sanctification of the spirit. So to be made worthy here does not refer to our initial salvation, that God would make you worthy so that you obtain salvation because he already called you to it from the beginning, right? So it's not, may God make you worthy so that you're good enough to be converted and justified and initially saved that's not what he's talking about because you already received this initial salvation and now he's praying that you're made worthy of it so it's not to make you good enough for initial salvation to become a christian no to be made worthy may refer to the fact that god makes us fit for the kingdom that god makes us fit for the kingdom as we live by faith in the king of the kingdom so maybe god shaping you through your trials to make you fitting to make you um, appropriate for the kingdom? That might be it, and I would lean to that, but I actually will, because of, after looking at the Greek word, I just think that it's consistently referring not to being made worthy, like being made fit, but considered worthy. So I'm gonna take it as um, not made worthy, but considered worthy, that God would consider you worthy of his calling in his eyes, not only in relation to uh, your initial salvation, but that um, when God sees you, he's not only seeing that you initially believed, but he's seeing that you're enduring in your faith in Jesus, in your trials, you're still glorifying Jesus, and in that God is seeing and considering you worthy. So the trials are making you more fitting, but God is considering that, he's seeing it as it's unfolding in your life. And of course, God sees all things, so he's not only seeing it as it's unfolding, but God sees the end from the beginning. But the point here is that Paul's praying that when God looks at your life, not just your initial conversion, but your whole life, as God looks at you, he sees that you are worthy, that you have, that your life um, after being converted is initially being made, more, made a more fit. So God says, rock is fit for the kingdom. June is fit for the kingdom. Hannah is fit for the kingdom as he sees your life, not in perfection, but in true faith. As you face God, um, the big challenges ordained for you. All right, this this idea of being counted worthy of his calling, the word counted worthy, you have a a similar word in verse five. So go back to chapter one, verse five. Earlier, Paul said, and I read it already, it is clear evidence, this persecution, these persecutions and afflictions, it is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted, this is God's judgment, that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are suffering. So again, it's this being counted as worthy of salvation that you were given, being counted as worthy of the kingdom that you will finally be given when Christ returns. This is normal Christianity. When Paul was planting churches in Acts 14. As he's going around, it says that he's preaching them. And then he, as he goes back home, he, it says he was strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith. There's that endurance, continue in the faith. And by telling them, here's the quote that Paul would say, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It is necessary, not optional. It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. There is no easy path for those who continue to live in Christ. What is it? Let's get at this idea of God making you worthy or God considering you worthy through your life. In Matthew 22, 8 through 12, you can turn there if you like, or you can just listen. Jesus tells this parable of, his, of a king who has a son who's going to have a wedding. So the king, the king has a son. He's going to have a wedding. He says, go invite all the people. So he invites all these people, all these rich people and all, all of the wealthy, and everyone's too busy. They, they all reject the invitation for different reasons in Matthew 22, um, in the story there in 1 through 14. Well, they reject it, and so they paid no attention, and so um, some even arrest and kill the messengers of the king. So then um, in verse 8 of Matthew 22, the king says to his servants, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So there's the idea of worthy. They weren't worthy. So here's what he says. Go then where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So now invite everyone, just anyone you see. So the servants, so those servants went out to the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. It's not just good, both evil and good at the banquet. The wedding banquet was filled with guests, both evil and good. When the king came to see his guests, now here he gives an example, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. So he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, tie him up uh, hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called or invited, but few are chosen. So here's all these people at the banquet. Just call everyone in, evil and good, just from the, from the streets. And there's someone there, there are some there, but he picks out one here, who is not dressed for the wedding banquet. Now you might say, well, PJ, he's inviting homeless people and all these other people who don't have clothes. How can they be fit for the wedding banquet? That's a good question. I wondered the same myself. So I had to look into a commentary on this. And um, R.T. France, a good commentator who writes two different commentaries on Matthew. He says, the clothing expected at the wedding was not a special garment like morning dress, but decent clean white clothes, such as anyone should have had available. In that case, the man's fault is that even though he's invited to the Royal wedding, he had not gone home to change into his best to turn up in ordinary dirty clothes was an insult to the host. The symbolism is of someone who presumes on the free offer of salvation by assuming that therefore there are no obligations attached. Someone whose life belies their profession. Faith without works. Entry to the kingdom of heaven may be free, but to continue in it carries conditions." End quote. Do you guys get that? So, he should have went home and changed. Just because you get a free invitation to the wedding doesn't mean you just show up however you want. You still go home and change and then come. So there are still conditions entailed even though the offer is free. Does that make sense? And so the worthiness of this person, the unworthiness of this person was even though he said, yeah, I'll take that free invitation to the banquet, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything appropriate or worthy, fitting to the banquet. He just shows up. And so in that, he's thrown out in this, language that sounds like the language of hell when when, when Jesus uses judgment. Okay, and so Paul's prayer and your expectation is you should expect that God will make you where that God should be working something in your life so that you go home and change clothes and then come to the wedding banquet, that you actually care about the invitation, you actually care about where you're going and where you're going to be celebrating, That that you do continue in Jesus, not I just believe in Jesus, now I live however I want and I'll show up at the end and they'll all be fine. It won't be fine, not for those people. So Paul prays that God would make the Thessalonian church members worthy of the calling, worthy of the kingdom, that he would consider them that because they are fitting for it. You should expect God, just like the Thessalonians, should expect God in his grace to answer this prayer. God makes his people worthy as he works in them through his saving work. That's the good news, that God makes people worthy and that God is the one who considers us worthy by his grace, as we'll see in a moment. So again the main goal expect god to work powerfully in you so that christ would be glorified in your trials that's kind of a a a major kind of idea that god would consider you worthy but here's the question and and that you would become worthy but how will god get us to this point where he considers us worthy of his calling and worthy of the kingdom how does god get us to this point how does god make us fit i think verse uh the next point the second expectation kind of fills out this idea look at the the second expectation going back to second thessalonians 1. Verse 11, in view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and, here's a second prayer request, by his power, fulfill your every desire to do good. So here's the second expectation. Expect God to, do, to fulfill your desires for goodness. You guys see it there in the text? Expect God to fulfill your desires for goodness. Now, the word desire here is, again, the, the dictionary definition is something that we wish for our satisfaction or the state or condition of being kindly disposed. You know, when you're in a good frame of mind, a good mindset where you, you feel kind and you feel like doing good and you wanna do good. You know, when you feel like that sometimes, oftentimes on Sundays that happens to you because you're stirred up to loving good works. Then there's other times when you're a bad frame of mind and a bad disposition where you're grumpy, cranky, and you just snap at people and you're selfish and you're irritable, um, and you're not desiring good things in, the, in those moments. So Paul's not talking about those moments. He's talking about when you desire good, his prayer is that God will fulfill them, that it wouldn't just be an inner desire and a, I feel good. I feel like I want to bless one of my church members today. Or I feel like I want to just bless my neighbor today. That you wouldn't just feel that and think that, but that God would actually fulfill that, that you actually do something with that desire. That's what Paul is praying here. God doesn't only want us to desire good things and intend to do good things. He wants us to act on it and live it out. God desires our desires to be fulfilled, our good desires to be fulfilled. Now, here it says, go back to verse 11, it says, By his power fulfill your every desire to do good. And the word every is there. Does God really mean your every desire, every single desire to do good, that God um, wants you to fulfill every desire to, to do good? My answer to that is it's a general every, not a specifically every single desire, but generally all your desires. And the reason for that is because sometimes you can have two desires for good that are in conflict. Like I desire to um, be a pastor here at BBC this weekend and to continue pastoring Bethany Baptist Church. There's also a real desire in me to plant a church overseas or to be a pastor of a church overseas somewhere in English to set up um, a healthy gospel preaching church there to disciple and send out pastors over there, like in the Philippines or somewhere else in the world. There's a, that is a real desire in my heart. Now I can't fulfill both of those desires at the same time because I can't be in two places at once, right? So is God gonna fulfill both of those desires? Well, no, I, I can only have one resolution that I actually live out in my life, right? And so I don't think it's every single desire for good, because sometimes we have conflicting desires for good, but that um, your, your overarching desire for good, or even when it's in, in conflict, that your, your main desire for good or the overcoming desire for good would be fulfilled. So it's one thing to, to desire conflicting desires. It's another thing for me to be like, well, I can't have either, so I'm just not going to pastor anywhere. That kind of defeats the purpose. So the, the point is that, my, my, that your stronger desire is fulfilled whenever it's conflicting. But that's what God wants, that when you want to do good, when you intend to do good, that it wouldn't just be an intention on the inside, but it actually have, find expression on the outside in terms of your relationships with other people. Where do these good desires come from? Philippians 2.13, you could turn there if you like to the left, but if not, you could listen. Philippians 2.12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But verse 13 says, for it is God who is working in you both to will or both to want and to work for according to his good purpose. So when you work according to God's purpose, when you work out your salvation, it's because God is working that in you. And here, not only when you work is God working in you, but here it says both to will and to work. So even you're willing, even you're desiring, you're intending, when you want to do good, who's working that in you? Who's working that desire in you? Who is that? God is. So God's not only working in you when you actually do good, but even your wanting to do good is an evidence of God working in you. So I have a question for you. What good desires have you had lately? What good desires have you had lately? What good resolutions and decisions have you made to do good? Was it to bless a particular person? Was it to pray for someone? Was it to read your Bible every day or at least today? What good desires have you had on the inside? And what must you fulfill this week given that desire that God is giving you? If you have a good desire, God is working in you. What do you need to do to live it out as we pray that God will fulfill your every good desire? Is your desire to bless someone in word or deed? Or maybe to listen to God in, in a word or listen, listen to other people's stories this week, a neighbor's story, another church member's story? Is your desire to eat with someone with gospel intentionality and gospel gratitude? Is your desire to speak for God to somebody as you speak the truth and love to them? Or maybe you have a desire this week to speak to God for somebody else in intercessory prayer. Or maybe you have a desire to Sabbath with people, Christians and non-Christians, as you continue to live with gospel intentionality, showing God's work and God's rest. You know, if we look at our church covenant, our church covenant is a list of good desires, is it not? that we promise each other. We promise that we're going to work together for the organization of Bethany Baptist Church, for the organism, the institution of Bethany Baptist Church, that we will work for the advancement of Bethany Baptist Church for its mission. That's a good desire that we've covenanted together to do. Our second set of promises in our church covenant is a covenant. Is our covenant promises to holiness and the Great Commission. That we'll promise to live holy lives in our own lives in order to reach out to our neighbors and the nations with the gospel. So we promise personal holiness. We've had good intentions. The third set of promises in our church covenant is for the one another's. That we will love one another and bear each other's burdens and pray for one another. So those have to be your good intentions at some point if you join this church. And the last one is that you'll always be committed to a local church. If you're in this church, you're a member of this church. If you're leaving this church, you have said in your good intentions that you will join another church as soon as possible, right? Those are four sets of promises that we've made as a church— And the prayer here is that we would fulfill those desires for good. And the application for us is that we should expect that our church will be fulfilling these desires by God's power. That should be an expectation in our lives, that God will fulfill these things in us. Now, there are many times, too many times in my life. Now, well, because it says, I'm sorry, I didn't touch this verse. Go back to verse 11. It says, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power, fulfill your every desire for good. By his power. So this fulfilling of our good desires comes from whose power? God's power. Now, in the Greek, it doesn't say his power, it just says by power. But clearly, if you're praying to God for the work to be done in your life and you're asking God for that help and it's going to be done by power, whose power is it going to be? clearly it's going to be god's power okay so it's it's going to be god's power that's fulfilling this in your life that's going to be working this out in your life and we need god's power i can confess to you here there's often many times in preaching to you guys uh, and when we have conversations i say yeah pray for me or on sunday night pray for me i want to engage my neighbor i want to do this or i want to do that and oftentimes i haven't done it i just say it i sincerely intend it and i don't do it and i fail to to fulfill it to work it out in my life and so i'm preparing for this message this week and i said last week what did i say last week do you remember what i what i said last week yeah that i text my neighbor something gospel intentional and something risky and i didn't do it as i'm preparing this message i'm like you know i have to do it (laughs) lord i need your power right now i need i need to do it okay so i didn't text the neighbor i initially intended to i texted a different neighbor but i still did and um so i I just told him hey can we read the bible i was like do you want to read the bible i'd love to read the bible with you this week i've never i haven't asked this of this person for maybe two years probably i'd love to read the bible with you this week i'd I'd love to read uh, the gospel according to mark a chapter chapter one just a chapter about jesus if you're free this week let's let's go grab lunch or coffee or just hang out in my backyard and let's read um the gospel mark let me know what you think so i text that i don't know what's going to happen with that but that's a good work. I'm speaking the truth in love. I'm inviting someone to share life, and I want to share Jesus with them. And I'm mentioning Jesus even in the text message. And that doesn't happen by my power, because if you look at my track record of engaging my neighbors, though I have intentionality and I do some to them, there's a lot of unfulfilled good desires that I've had, as many of you know. The point here is that God will empower us to do it as we pray. We should expect that. There's one song, one, one of my favorite Christian R&B songs. You probably don't know who these people are, but um, they had the song where they would say, and I listened to this a lot in high school and in college, every good thing, here, I'll quote the song, every good thing that I have done, everything that I've become, everything, everything that's turned out right is because you're in my life. And if I ever teach a child the way, ever learn myself to change, ever become who I want to be, it's not the I, but the you in me. That, that helps me to understand that everything that I do that's good, everything, not one thing, is because of myself apart from God. It's always because of not me, but God in me. And that's the idea here, that God in his power will work in you. So expect God to give you desires and a mindset, a disposition, a frame of heart, of kindness. And then when you have that, act on it. And when you're convicted that you don't, Repent and confess your sin to others and act on that. Don't just think a good desire. Grab that thought, pray for that thought that God would fulfill it in you and then take a step in that direction. God, help me to take a baby step in that direction to actually do something. Church family, let let us be stirred by one another on Sundays, Sunday nights, come this Sunday night. Some of you are not coming on Sunday nights, and I understand with COVID-19 and the threat, but you could stay in your car. We wear a mask. You could stay as far as you want. Come on Sunday night if you don't have a fever or symptoms. Come and be stirred up to love and good works as we gather together tonight. And even as we meet on Zoom or as you meet with others throughout the the week, stir one another up to love and good works so that we have those good intentions and that God would fulfill, fulfill them. Children, I want to encourage you, children. Children, um, if, if you don't trust in Jesus Christ, you need to trust in Jesus Christ. Now, for the children who do trust in Jesus Christ, I want you children to know that God is powerfully working in you as well if you truly trust in Jesus. You don't have to be an adult to do good works in God's power. God is working in you as well. So expect God to work powerfully in you so that Christ would be glorified in your trials. So what else may we expect? If we should expect God to fulfill our every desire for good, what else should we expect from God? Thirdly, expect God to fulfill your work produced by faith. Look at verse 11 again. Expect God to fulfill your work produced by faith. The very last part of verse 11. So by his power fulfill, and then the end of verse 11, your work produced by faith. So your work is what you do, and it's produced by what? By faith. So what is faith doing to the work? Faith is producing the work. Uh, another way you could say it is your, your, um, your work that, is, that comes from your faith. So faith is the source of your work. Faith is the source of your work. Faith is the root of the product or the fruit of your work. So it's the work of faith, the work that comes from your faith. In other words, faith produces, saving faith, living faith, real faith, faith that will make you stand worthy in the judgment to come faith that is real produces work and faith without works is dead right faith without works is dead james 2 17. so faith is a living faith that we're talking about here the work that is produced from faith is produced from a living faith now let me just get this idea of living faith let's expand on this just a little bit john 6 35 says Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Everyone who believes in me, believes, there's faith. Everyone who has faith in me will never hunger. Everyone who comes to me will never thirst. So here we have a a picture of what faith is. Everyone who believes in me will never hunger. Why? Why believing in Jesus, why would that eradicate or satisfy your hunger? Because Jesus said, I am the what? Do you guys remember from the quote? I am the... Bread of life. And so if you, if you believe in me and I'm the bread of life, then you won't hunger anymore. Now, if you're hungry and your stomach is rumbling and you see bread and you say, I believe that that bread will, will fulfill my hunger, but then you don't eat it, is your hunger satisfied? No, that would be a dead faith or an inactive faith because it doesn't actually produce the action. But if, I believe, if I'm really hungry and I see a piece of bread here, and I believe that this bread will satisfy me and the bread is accessible to me and I have the right to eat it, if I really believe, believe, if I really have faith that this will satisfy me, then I'll grab the bread and I'll eat it. And that that grabbing and eating is produced by faith, the the intellectual ascent. But I would even say, at least Jesus here is even saying, that the very act of that is faith. Okay, So it is faith and that faith produces work and faith produces more faith. Okay, So the point here is that Living faith produces work. It actually moves you to action. If you say, no, I believe with all my heart that that bread will satisfy my hunger and I'm really hungry and I really want to eat and I really believe it, but then you don't eat it. I'm like, well, you don't really believe it. You don't, you say you do, but you don't because you're not acting in accord with that faith. So so Paul is praying here and we should be expecting that our faith will produce work in our lives. It will bear the fruit of work and action in our lives. Now, where does faith come from? How does faith come? Where does it come from? Faith comes from hearing, Romans ten seventeen, and hearing the word of Christ, okay? The message of Christ. And because I quote that verse almost always, I'm just going to tell you BBC now, it's word of Christ, not word of God. Word of God is King James version, which is a fine translation for the members who like King James. But, um, but, the, yeah, it's, it's actually Christ in the best manuscripts, not God. So the word or the message of Christ. So faith comes by hearing. So every time I say it now, because I say that often in, this, in my preaching, you'll just always say word of Christ now and not word of God. So um, faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. And when you hear the word of Christ, that he is the bread of life, that he can satisfy your hunger, then you want him. Then you come to him and you go to him every time you hear. And that's the work that is coming from faith. You hear about Christ, you believe in Christ, and then you move towards Christ in your life. You start putting yourselves in positions. That's why you're here right now listening to the word if you're a Christian, because you're putting yourself in a position to get more of Jesus. That's why you're listening right now. That's why you're following along. Because you believe that you can have more of Christ, that you can enjoy more of Christ right now if you meditate on his word. So when you're a Christian, you want Jesus, you desire Jesus, you trust Jesus to satisfy your hunger. And so you keep coming to him, And you do things in your life, not merely to obey Jesus. You do things in your life and you obey Jesus because you trust Jesus and you trust that by obeying Jesus, you get closer to Jesus. You get more of Jesus. So when you bless others, you listen to others, you speak, you eat, you Sabbath with others, you gather with church family, you encourage church family, you rebuke church family and others, you serve others. When you do those things, you do it because you trust in Jesus and you trust That as you obey and work, you get closer to Jesus. That's what you do. You believe that. You go deeper with Jesus. And this all comes from faith. It's all produced by faith. And this faith powerfully works in you because it comes by God's power that enables you to act. God is powerfully working in you. So you might feel like your faith is weak, but because God's power is working in your faith, when you truly trust jesus it has a powerful effect to make you produce work so you need to trust right now christian that god is working in you okay that god works by his power in you you need to realize that god's power is for you and god's power is in you that's why paul prays in ephesians 1:18 and 19 i pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened So that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the might, the mighty working of his strength. God is mightily working in you. God is powerfully working in you. And it's an immeasurable greatness. And Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1.18 is that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to see that God is working in you. So some of us question as Christians, is God even working in me? And Paul's saying that's not even a a valid question. If you're a Christian, that's not even a valid question. Is God powerfully working in you? The question is, is your heart, the eyes of your heart, enlightened to such a point that you actually realize that he's powerfully working in you? God is already working in you if you're a Christian. I love to teach people how to swim in the deep end of a pool. I've been doing that ever since I was a kid. We grew up with a pool, and so neighborhood kids, church, family, friends, I've been teaching people— me and my brothers have been teaching kids and then even other adults teaching people to swim all of our lives whenever we're in a pool and we love doing that whenever we whenever I meet someone who doesn't know how to swim and they're in a pool and they're willing to learn I love to like just try to help them and get them to it and what I do is my method is to just get them to swim across back and forth in the shallow water where they can stand up and just doing that back and forth until it gets so boring and so easy to them and they're like this is this is boring, this is not really, I'm not really learning how to swim by doing this. So just getting them to do that over and over again, just getting that power to stay on top of the water and just go right across from side to side of the pool. Then we just go deeper, especially when it's little kids, we just go deeper and deeper, I just take them down and they just make them swim across again and again until we get to the deep end and I just make them swim across again. And they get really scared the first time they do it, right? They're there, I can even remember when I first learned, you're standing there, you're looking across and it just, it just seems so deep and I don't have the power within me to actually swim across. But the reality is, and I know this as I'm teaching them, is that if they swim back and forth in the shallow end and they have enough power to stay on top of the water going across in the shallow end and it's the same length in the deep end, you have all the power you need to make it across because the depth of the water doesn't affect your power or ability to stay on top of the water, right? And so oftentimes teaching people to swim across a pool is not a matter of Of teaching them how to swim it's really teaching them to be confident that they have the power already within them to swim across and that's what paul wants us to realize from this passage that you have faith in jesus christ and it will powerfully work in you it will powerfully work in you to um to to work and produce faith in your life we have songs about this like all i have is christ which we sung today where it says, Now, Lord, I would be yours alone to live so that all might see the strength to follow your command could never come from me. But we do follow God's commands. Where does that power come from? It comes from God. So we need to realize that we already have the power. Oftentimes, we, don't, we just don't realize it. So brothers, and sisters, feed your faith. Keep hearing and reading the word of Christ and pray for God's power. Read your Bible and, and feed your faith and then live off of that. Expect God to fulfill your work produced by faith and to work out your salvation. Believe the truth and let the truth raise your expectations that God is working in you and then live in light of that. Lies lower expectations. When you believe lies, lies lower your expectations of what God is doing in your life and through you. Truth calls you to expect greater things from God in your life today And through your life today as you meditate on god's truth and you meditate on christ who is the truth god through that truth is calling you to expect greater things in you and through you even today and as a church family we confess the truth in our doctrinal statement our confession of faith on transformation those who have been regenerated are also transformed by god's word and spirit dwelling in them do you believe that we believe that as a church that god does transform you by his word and by his spirit so if you're discouraged and saying god can't work in me I'm too sinful, I'm too stubborn, I'm too stuck in my sin. I know that God won't work in me because God hasn't worked in me. If you're discouraged, brother or sister, and that's where you're at, let me encourage you with a few questions. Do you have any desire to do good? Do you have any desire to trust Christ and break sin in your life or weaken the pattern of sin in your life? Do you have any desire to break the stubbornness Do you want Jesus to help you get unstuck? Do you want to turn a corner in your Christian life and and grow at at a quicker rate, at a faster rate? If you truly do, then here's the good news. God is already working in you. You're not waiting for God to work in you. If you're convicted even now and you're desiring anything that's good, that's God working in you right now. Just pray that God would fulfill it in you by his power. Ask other members to pray for you and expect that God would fulfill it in you through Jesus Christ. All right, so our main goal is that, expect, is that you should expect God to work powerfully in you so that Christ will be glorified in your trials. So why does Paul pray this prayer? What's the purpose of it? Let's go to verse 12. All right, let's go to, to point four, verse 12. Um, so that... Here's the purpose. Here's why we pray this way. Here's why we expect it. Here's the purpose of all of this, working, fulfilling of desires for good and being worthy of his calling. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the purpose. And I put this as an expectation, but it is the purpose of all of it. Okay. Uh, The fourth expectation is expect glorification. Okay? So you're expecting God to make you worthy of his calling. You're expecting God to fulfill your every desire for good. You're expecting um, your work to be produced by faith. And now you're expecting glorification. That's the purpose. Here's the point of all of it. Why, Why should God fulfill our desires for good? Why should God produce work through our faith, by our faith? Why should God make us worthy of his calling? Answer, so that Christ's name would be glorified in you. There's the purpose of all of it. Verse 12. The name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you. Isn't it all about Christ's glory? We do everything for the glory of Christ. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we want to do everything to the glory of God and here to the glory of Christ. Now, John Piper helpfully asks this question. If it's God's power that's working in you, then why does Christ get the glory? It says God and not Christ in verse 11. God is working in you. Why does Christ get the glory? I wonder how you, how you would answer that question. Why does Christ get the glory if it's God's power working in you? My answer from this text is because God working for you and in you is by grace. That's actually in verse 12, right? It says, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's by God's grace that he's working in you. And this grace comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my answer. God's grace to you only comes because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, right? So this is why Christ gets the glory when God works in you. Because the God, the the Father, God the Father working in the Son through the Spirit, but God the Father doing these things in you is only possible, God the Father would only be for you because of Jesus Christ. So anytime you do good, you fulfill your desires for good, you do work produced by faith, you're being more fit for the kingdom and for God's calling, it's only because Christ purchased this grace for you. And how did he do it? He did it through the gospel. And so Christian, I remind you of the gospel. If you're not a Christian and you've been, everything's been flying over your head, if you could just listen for this one minute, let me tell you what the main message of Christianity is, what the gospel is. Because this is why God can be for people who are sinners and not necessarily against them. God made you and I in his image so that we would live for him and glorify him, that we would enjoy him. But we have rebelled against God, we've sinned against God, we have rejected God and said, you know what, God, I'll live my own way. And the Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. The wages of sin is death, eternal death, or it says here in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, eternal destruction, God's wrath and judgment, his vengeance on us for our sins. That's the bad news, that we're sinners damned to hell for our sins and rebellion. The good news is that God can um, give us grace because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, Into the world, God the Son became a man named Jesus. He lived the life we should have lived. He lived for us. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead so that everyone who repents from their sins and trusts in Jesus, who lived for us, died for us, and rose for us, you would be forgiven of your sins. God would cleanse you. He would would adopt you and make you his own. He would unite you to Jesus by faith. And God would give you his Holy Spirit to live in you and transform you for the rest of your life all the way into eternity. That's the gospel, that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. And God is inviting you, if you're not a Christian, to come to Jesus Christ, to repent from your sins, and to call out on Jesus to save you, to trust in him and be saved, be forgiven, enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, if we do this and we start to glorify Jesus with our lives, what does it mean to glorify Jesus? Does this mean that um jesus christ becomes more glorious just like if i said let's beautify our parking lot our east lot which we definitely need to beautify let's beautify our east parking lot we're saying make it more beautiful than it already is right so when we say let's glorify jesus or may jesus be glorified do we mean that we're going to make jesus more glorious than he already is yes or no okay okay here one no and i got a few other non-responses yes make jesus more glorious By our glorifying him, does Jesus become more glorious, actually more glorious? Yes or no? Another no? What about you guys? Does Jesus become more glorious as we glorify him? Like, does he increase in his amount of glory? No, okay, no, he does not. Yeah, so that's not what it means. It's not as if you can add to Christ's glory. Christ being glorified, when we say we're glorifying Christ, we're talking about Christ being glorified in the sense that Christ is seen more clearly by others, and treasured more dearly by others. So he's not not increasing in his glory, but we're increasing in our seeing his glory and enjoying his glory and displaying his glory. So Christ is glorified in you. He's magnified. He's seen more clearly and treasured or desired more dearly because of your work produced by faith. Your desires for good that are fulfilled, and the fact that God is fitting you for his calling to salvation. When that happens in your life, you show Christ even more. And that's our purpose. That's our main mission in life. And that's God's greatest passion that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. God does everything for his glory. And so you might say, if you're not a Christian, you know, God is so selfish. He just does everything for his own glory and his own agenda. I could never trust a God like that because that God would just totally dismiss me and, and misuse me and mistreat me for his own glory. Let me respond by saying a few things. One, when other people seek their own agenda and glory and they're not God, it always leads to mistreating you and taking advantage of you. So let me sympathize with you and say, yeah, I get it. Because everyone else who seeks their own agenda and their own glory in your life for their own glory, they will misuse they will abuse you and they'll misuse their relationship with you and so I understand why you might not want to trust God for that but let me tell you why you should still trust this God the triune God because most reasonable humans want peace and harmony in this world now God's glory and God's agenda is the only glory and agenda that would that creates perfect harmony in this universe our agendas and when we seek our own glory somebody else's glory that leads to human to the breakdown of human society. That leads to conflict and a lack of peace in our world. So when you trust God's glory, then when I serve you and you serve me and we have different agendas, if my agenda is God's glory and not my own glory, then even if you disagree with me, at least I know I'm serving you not for my own self-centered end, but I'm trying to serve you for God's God-centered end. And that would make the world a better place. Second reason why you should not, or third reason, uh, thought on why you should not reject this God, is God wants you to actually, he wants you, he wants your eternal and fulfilled happiness and joy. And what I mean by that is God, so God wants you to have full happiness and that happiness is found in him. And so God wants to glorify you in him. He wants to, he wants to fulfill all your good desires. He wants to make all your desires, good desires. He wants to fulfill all of them. And he wants to give you a body that can actually contain and live out and enjoy these good desires. In other words, he wants to glorify you. So, and that's what we get in this next verse is that not only would Christ be glorified in us, but that we would be glorified in him. So if you're not a Christian, you're saying, well, God is so selfish. He just wants to push me aside and use me. No, God actually wants to invite you in to be glorified, to share in that glory with him at the center, but you're still included, just not at the center okay so um so so we have that second purpose here so that christ the name of jesus will be glorified in you look at verse uh, 12 and that you would be glorified by him or that you would be glorified in jesus i think in is a better translation than by so that you would be glorified in jesus now this sounds strange god is going to glorify you isn't it all about christ's glory and not your glory we want christ to be glorified not us right we don't want to be selfish and self-exalting, do we? Do you want to be selfish and self-exalting? Well, not so fast. Don't say no so quickly to that. Selfishness is always wrong. Self-centeredness also is always wrong because you're never rightfully, the cent- you're never rightfully central to anyone's life. So anytime you get self-centered and you impose your self-centeredness on somebody else you're never truly central in any situation and in any person's life ever so it's never right to be self-centered because you're not central god is but self-exaltation now this is new i never thought this until preparing this week self-exaltation is not always wrong self-centeredness is always wrong but just like self-interest is not always wrong self-exaltation is not always wrong. It depends on where you want your exaltation and how you want your exaltation. Remember when the disciples are fighting over who's the greatest? They're fighting over who's the greatest. And um, when Jesus rebukes them, he doesn't say, stop pursuing greatness, you're so selfish. He says, if you really wanna be great, serve others. And if you wanna be the greatest of all time, the greatest of all people, then be a slave to all people. That's true greatness. So Jesus is not saying, don't seek greatness. Don't seek your exaltation. He's saying you have a sinful view of exaltation, that you need others to serve you. But that's not true exaltation. You want to be exalted? Then serve others and die for others. And Jesus says, for even the Son of Man, who's the greatest of all, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So exalt yourself by humbling yourself to serve others. So you should want to be exalted by humbling yourself. And by serving other people, God will exalt you with true greatness in his time and in his way. To serve in this way is for you to be glorified because you're being more like Christ, right? If I die to myself more and more and exalt Christ and I serve other people, who am I showing? Jesus Christ. And what is God doing to me? He's changing me into being more humble, more servant-like. And so as he's doing that, I'm becoming more and more glorified, right? I'm becoming more and more glorious. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 gets at. When we see Christ's glory, we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We keep on growing in glorification even now. We think of glorification as when you get your glorified body. That's a huge point in glorification, but even now you're being glorified. You're changing from one degree of glory to the next as you keep growing as a Christian. And when you're growing as a Christian, who's being glorified? Christ is being glorified. And you're being glorified at the same time. In different ways, but together you're being glorified. The more you are glorified in your service and humility and endurance and suffering and the more good works that you do in faith and when your glorified body actually comes, then Jesus will be glorified in all that. Jesus is glorified in all that. So brothers and sisters, get this. It's not either Christ's glory or your glory. It's not either Christ's glorification or your glorification any more than it's either my good or my wife's good. It's either both of our good or neither of our good, right? Because, and this is the key, in marriage, the two become one flesh, right? And so Paul even says, a husband doesn't hate his own body, he feeds and takes care of it. So if I hurt my wife, I'm hurting my own body because we're one. And if, if me working for my good is working for my wife's good, and me working against my wife's good is working against my good, then so it is with Christ and his bride. If Christ will be glorified, so must his bride be. So it's not about the the groom's glorification or the bride's glorification. No, it's both glorification happening in God's work. So we want this harmony. We want this glory of God. We want this perfect harmony in human society. Even non-Christians want that. America wants that. Los Angeles wants that. But I'll tell you, Los Angeles tell you neighbors who are not Christian, who are listening, or even those who are, we all know that we need a higher power to have this harmony. So some of us look to the government. We're looking to this election, maybe, that if we get the right person in office or keep the right person in office, then we'll have, then that will be the key to our society's progress and flourishing. But let me tell you, Christian and non-Christian, the government A political party, your career, your influences, or you being being influential, your pleasures, your prosperity, the control you think you have over this world, none of that puts Jesus at the center, if you put that on the center, and all of those things will fail you, and it won't produce the harmony in your life or in the harmony in the lives of others, so look to Jesus, because Jesus, when we look to Christ— and we look to glorify him, we find our glory, not just your glory individually, but all of God's people's glory, and you have perfect harmony within God's people, the human society, and with God himself. So brothers and sisters, understand that God is working to glorify you so that Christ will be glorified in you. Be thankful that God is passionate for your glorification. As passionate as God is for Christ's glory, that same degree of passion God has for your glory. That's why he wants to fulfill every work of faith and every desire for good in you. God is going to work in you today so that Christ will be glorified in you. So preach that to yourself. I told you one of my applications before from a, not a Christian, um, Christian uh, self-help advice was, before you feet, your, te- your feet touch the, the ground of your bed, say, today's gonna be a great day. Remember I said that a few weeks ago? Today's gonna be a great day. And just saying it out loud does kind of change your mindset. We can Christianize that and just say in the morning, God is going to work in me today, so that Christ would be glorified in me and I would be glorified in him. Now that's not as short. You could just say, before your feet touch the ground, Christ is going to work in me today. God is going to work in me today for his glory. Say that to yourself and preach that to yourself every day. Church family, let's pray for let's pray this for one another. And let's pray that God would work in us and let's expect God to work in each other, not according to our timing, but according to his. So again, the main goal, expect God to work powerfully in you so that Christ would be glorified in your trials. Expect God to make you worthy of his calling. Expect God to fulfill your desires for good and every work of faith. Expect that all of this would be for the purpose of glorifying God's son and God's son's bride, the church. Now we know our failings, right? We have not walked worthy of our calling. We have left so many of our good desires undone and just in our own minds, in our hearts. We have often left, we've often had a weak faith and an inactive faith that's dominated by distractions and doubt. We have not glorified Jesus or sought to bring glory to Jesus in all that we've done. And so really, why should we expect God to work in us for his glory? We should not expect God to work in us for his glory because we haven't lived for Christ's glory anyways. We have fallen short of the glory of God. There's only one person who hasn't fallen short of the glory of God, right? There's only one person who could really expect glory to himself, and that's Jesus Christ. He walked worthy. He did every good resolve. He did every work of faith in God. Jesus glorified God perfectly, and yet, even in this glorifying of God in his life, Jesus did not expect favor from God at least immediately. He expected the judgment of God. Jesus went to the cross not expecting God to um, glorify him in a sense in that moment, though this is in reverse fashion. It is the glorification of Christ. But Christ went to the cross expecting not exaltation and joy in the moment, but damnation and destruction in that moment. So Christ would hang on the cross. The only one who gets to expect favor from God hangs on the cross and doesn't get favor from God but gets exactly what he knew he should have expected because of God's plan, namely the curse and damnation. So instead of getting celebration at the end of a life well-lived, he got damnation in suffering, death, judgment, and burial. That's what he got. But he knew, and this is what happened, that God would raise him from the dead. He actually took up his own life and was raised from the dead on the third day. And now he gives us, he gives his people, his bride, god's life light and love to save us and to empower us and to encourage us and to work in us unto final salvation praise god that jesus died for us and rose for us so that we could have greater expectations of our lives so you could expect today that god would work in you here's the good news brothers and sisters christ lived for you christ died for you christ was buried for you christ rose for you christ Praise for you. Jesus wrote to you through Paul this letter, right? Jesus moves people to pray for you. He moves your church family to pray for you. Jesus Christ sent me today to preach to you and Jesus Christ sent you today or sent your church family to listen to this message with you on Zoom so that you would expect God to work in you for Christ's glory. Christ is working in you. He's working for you all the time. Therefore, brothers and sisters, raise your expectations. Raise your expectations. Don't let those lies lower your expectations of God's work. Raise your expectations that God is working in you and on you so that Christ would be glorified in you and that you and we all would be glorified in him. Let's pray. Father, raise our expectations. You're working in us now, even as we pray. Change us. Make us worthy of the calling. Fulfill every desire for good and work of faith in your power. Help us to believe. Help us to have faith that you will work in us, even today, with all that's going on this Lord's Day and this coming week, so that Christ would be glorified in us and we In Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.